So like I said, uh, this morning we're starting a brand new series in the book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah is a book about uh, probably the most important building project in all of human history. It's a story about one man's uh, contribution and leadership in one of the most important building projects in all of human history. Now the question is, why are we looking at this book right now as a church? Why are, why are we, Fellowship Bible Church, looking at Nehemiah right now? And I think the answer is, um, you know, in the life of our church, you know, we always, there's always seasons in the life of the church. And uh, right now, our church is in a season of building and rebuilding. And so in some ways, we're in the same situation as Nehemiah. We're hiring staff, we're reconfiguring things, we're building up programs again, um, I mean, in some ways, every January, we're doing this sort of thing, but especially now as a church, we're in a process of building and rebuilding, and we want to get oriented for that here in January as as we uh, go about our building as a church. But it's not just unique to our church. Uh, As you look in the New Testament, God is always comparing his work in the world to a building project, right? And so you remember in, uh, I think it was Matthew, uh, Peter stood up and uh, Jesus said, "Uh, who who do men say that I am? And Peter said, uh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then uh, Jesus says, you're right, and on this rock, what? I will build my church. Jesus describes the kingdom of God as something that he's building, like a builder. And then Paul the Apostle, uh, later on in the New Testament, he pictures himself as a, quote, master builder. He says, I'm involved in church planting and the kingdom of God, and I'm doing all this work, and I'm like a master builder, and I've laid the foundation, and others have come along, and they're building as well, but he pictures himself as someone who's engaged in a building project, building the kingdom. And even the church, I mean, we're pictured in the New Testament as living stones in God's building, right, being built together and cemented together into the great building of God. Uh, There's even a place where Paul says uh, that all of us contribute to the building that God is doing in the world. He says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so Paul says, uh, you know, God is building in the world. Jesus is building, and Paul was building, and every single one of us has a role to play. We're all builders. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to build, to work in God's great construction project. And so we're looking at that in Nehemiah now. Uh, When I think about this, this is so exciting, but it also is scary to me, because I am horrible at building projects. And, uh, you know, four years ago, I I bought a house, and, uh, you know, a brand new homeowner, you know, I looked at my house, and I envisioned all of these grand building projects I was going to do. Anybody with me here? You know, brand new homeowner, and so I thought, I'm going to paint the house, I'm going to uh, renovate both bathrooms. I'm going to renovate the kitchen. We're going to put up a fence. Uh, we're going we're to put in new floors. And guess how much of that is done? Zero. <laughs> I've got none of it done. Well, actually, part of the kitchen is done. I finally got off my rear and, and uh, started renovating the kitchen and then gave up halfway through. Um, so now I've got a, a halfway finished kitchen. But I'm horrible at building projects. And so it scares me to think about God's kingdom as something that we're building. You know, and I don't know about you, but so often I feel like I've got grand schemes, you know, grand visions of how I'm going to build and how I'm going to get involved in God's work, but none of them ever really materialize. You know, I end up sitting on my bottom, 
and not really getting to work the way God wants me to. Or maybe I get started in something, but then I give up halfway through. And so the question I want to begin with is, how do we engage in this work? How do we get, get, get out of our comfort zones and start building the way God wants us to? You know, there's a work out there for us to do as a church, corporately, but also individually. How do we get involved in that? How do we get off our, how do we get in the game? And how do we not give up once we've started? Well, in order to, to see that, we're going to go to the very beginning of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah begins with a man who is sitting in comfort, you know, he's in the palace. And yet he gets out of his comfort zone and he, he risks his life. And he gets into the trenches and he starts rebuilding the walls. He starts building. And the question I want to ask here at the very beginning is, what was it that got Nehemiah going? Because we need to know what that is to get us going. What is it that, that propelled Nehemiah into building? So that we could figure out what that is so that we could be propelled into the work that God wants us to do. I want us to see uh, three things. Surprise, surprise. Uh, number one, uh, Isaiah was propelled into building. Number one, because he owned the problem. Second of all, he was broken by the problem. And then finally, he was convinced of the solution. And we're going to look at those three things. And so first, uh, Nehemiah began to build because he first owned the problem. Let's look at that. Verse 1. <clears throat> Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, or Hanani, not Hanani, one of my brothers uh, came uh, with certain men from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there is in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so first uh, we see here that Nehemiah owned the problem. So first uh, let's get into this here. Who is Nehemiah? Well, it says here that Nehemiah is the son of Hakaliah. And who is Hakaliah? I have no idea. <laughs> We have really no idea who Nehemiah is. He's the first mention of Nehemiah in the Bible. The only thing we know about him is that he's incredibly short. He is Nehemiah. That was so corny. Um, I won't do that second service. I will do it. <laughs> um, so we, we really don't know who this guy is. Uh, he's Nehemiah. He's the son of Hakaliah. And it says here, he is the cupbearer to the king. <clears throat> now, the cupbearer to the king, it was sort of a, uh, somewhat of a dangerous job. You know, you would taste the king's food, and you would uh, drink the king's drink before he would eat and drink. Why? So that if the food or drink was poison, you would die instead of him. All right? So a cupbearer is a job for a risk taker who liked to eat. Right? And this is what he did. And uh, in some ways, it's very dangerous. But in other ways, this is a job that was actually pretty uh, comfortable. Uh, the cupbearer was a confidant to the king. He lived in the palace. Uh, he had considerable power. He had a voice. He had the ear of the king. And, and there he was. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. <clears throat> and then uh, his, one of his brothers, Hanani, comes to him. And he comes to him with some news. And here's what he says. The remnant, this is verse uh, 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in, the great, is in great trouble and shame. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, now he, he presents to Nehemiah the great problem. And in order to understand the scope of the problem, we need to get some of the history. You see, way back at the very beginning of the Bible, God called a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make you into a people. And uh, at that point, it was just Abraham. But from Abraham and all of his many sons, God created a nation. And God gave this nation a land called Israel. And at the center of this land, God built, uh, enabled them to build a city called Jerusalem. And in the city was the temple. And the city of Jerusalem was the linchpin of God's plan to bless the nations. It was from Jerusalem that the Messiah would rule. It was from Jerusalem that God would, would, would bless all the other nations. And so Israel, uh, especially Jerusalem, was incredibly important. And so the city was built up, and, and this man named David came to rule, a precursor to the Messiah, and things were looking up, and it seems as though God was really going to use Jerusalem to reach all the nations. But then David died, and Jerusalem essentially fell apart. The nation was divided, it was internally fractured, it was internally weakened. And then in 586, uh, this weakened nation was besieged by a great nation called Babylon. Uh, you remember Nebuchadnezzar uh, marched into the city and, and, he, and he burned the palaces, palaces and he ransacked the city and he left it in ruins and the walls were rubble. And the people of Israel were carted off to Babylon 800 miles in chains to be servants and slaves. And there the people of Israel were in Babylon and they were deeply sad. In fact, all the Psalms of Lament were written in exile in Babylon and they were so sad because their city was in ruins. Uh, there's one psalm where the people of Israel and Babylon, Babylon sang this. They said, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Now Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And why were they weeping? It's not because they lost their, just lost their city or lost their culture. The plan of God was th being threatened. You see, this was the city where the Messiah was supposed to, re to reign. And if there's no Jerusalem, there's no Messiah. There's no place for him to rule. And so the city is ruined there in Babylon mourning. But then in 539 BC, the Babylons were, uh, were blown out by the Persians, the Persian Empire. And uh, the, the king of uh, Persia, his name was Cyrus. And it was Cyrus who gave the command to the Jewish people to go back to, to Jerusalem to rebuild their city. And things were looking up. It looked like God was going to keep working uh, in the world. His plan was not going to be thwarted. And so the people of Israel, they went back from Persia. They began to rebuild the walls. And that's where we begin Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, there's people back there. They're rebuilding the city. But then uh, Nehemiah gets the news. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The people that went back to rebuild are not make, making very good progress. The city is still in ruins. And the neighboring uh, you know, cities are threatening to destroy the builders. And the walls are still broken down. Uh, God's city is, is looking like it's not going to be rebuilt. This is a great problem. And here we see, here's point number one, that that Nehemiah gets into the work because he is, he's concerned and he's confronted and he owns this problem for himself. Now, Nehemiah had problems of his own. 
right? Remember, he's the cupbearer to the king. This is a dangerous job. Every day, uh, you know, he was in danger of being poisoned. And he could have said, you know, that's a bummer that Israel's not, or that Jerusalem is not being rebuilt. But that's their problem. I've got my own problems. I'm dealing with my own stuff. And I am comfortable here in the palace. I work so hard, I'm finally here. It's terrible that that's happening to them, but that's not my concern. No, Nehemiah first owned the problem. And so often we don't get into God's work because the only problems that we own are our own problems. Or the only problems that concern us are the ones that concern us. And God's people get to work in God's kingdom when they start to look beyond their own problems and begin to own a bigger problem. They see themselves as playing a role in something much larger than their own lives. One of my favorite stories of this is um, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who lived during, uh, he was in Germany during the uh, Nazi Holocaust. And um, he was part of the Confessing Church, which was the church that didn't uh, uh, align themselves with Hitler. And so he was preaching against Hitler until his life got in danger there. And so his friends way back in New York City said, hey, come over here. We'll give you a great little position at Union Seminary, and you could live in New York City. What's better than that? And so Bonhoeffer flew out of Germany into New York City, and there he taught at the the Union Seminary there in New York City. Lived in a great little apartment there. But at one point, he started thinking, you know, Hitler's not going away. And how could I sit here in New York when my people are suffering under the Third Reich? And he said, I've got to go back. And his friend says, what are, you, what are you talking about? We worked so hard to get you here. You've got a, a, a flat here in New York City. But you see, he owned a bigger problem. And he looked beyond his own little life. And so often, this is what we've got to do if we're going to get involved in God's work. You know, I know that you've got problems, and I do too. And I know that, you know, it's so easy to sort of look at your own life and say, God, I've got this problem and that problem. But if you will look beyond and see what God is doing in the world, there's something bigger going on. You're part of a bigger story than your own story. And God wants you to look and own a problem that's bigger than your own life. And so that's the first thing Nehemiah did is he owned the problem. I want to give you a quote before we move on. This is by Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon, an old preacher, it's going to come up on the screen. He says, we are not 20 churches, brethren, or 200. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the head, and we are members of that one body, which is his church. We ought to sympathize with all who are in Christ, and especially if the cause of God is not prospering in any place. We should do as Nehemiah did, and wept and mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah looked beyond his own little circle. He saw the bigger problem, and that propelled him into building. It's going to propel us too. But let's look at the second thing, which is Nehemiah is broken by the problem. So Nehemiah, he he asked his his brother about what's going on, and he discovers that things are not going well. But then look look what happens next. This is in verse 4. Nehemiah not only sees the problem, but he's broken by it. He's wrecked by it. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
And I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes opened to hear the prayer of your servant. We'll stop there. So he hears about what's going on. He sees that there's a problem out there. But he doesn't just see it. He's broken by it. And he's wrecked by it. He begins to mourn and he begins to weep. These broken walls are troubling him. He can't stand it. It's bothering him. And And he's broken and he's weeping and he's fasting about it. And this is not really, not just a uh, short-lived sadness. This goes on for four months. And so if you look at verse 2, notice uh, Nehemiah is still weeping in in chapter 2. It says, uh, still in the month of Nisan. And you need to know that Nisan comes right after the month of Toyota, uh, which right (laughs) comes after Pontiac. This is the sermon of cheesy jokes. I'm so sorry. But I'll do it again next service. It came in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king of Xerxes. So this is four months later, four months later. Uh, When wine was before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in in his presence before. And the king said to me, why is your face, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? And then he says, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. So this is a sadness that he can't can't hide it. It's so intense. He's so wrecked inside that it's coming out. And the king even notices, even though he's trying to hide it. And this is the second thing that will propel you into building, into God's work. It's when you see a problem that's beyond your own problems, but it's not not just that you see it, your heart begins to become wrecked by it. Your heart gets broken by it. Whenever you look at people that are doing a work for God, whether it's serving in Sunday school or preaching or missionary work or even just giving money, it always begins with, with, but before any of that happens, it's catalyzed by a broken heart. They saw a problem that they couldn't stand. And it's like Popeye, right? Popeye the sailor man. Remember he had that one saying, he, you know, olive oil would get in trouble, you know, the beautiful uh, heroine. And what would he say? That's all I can stands. What? I can't stands no more. I mean, a dubious grammar, but he's a sailor man, right? And, <laughs> and so uh, there's always that Popeye moment. Whereas you not only see a problem, but the problem begins to wreck you and you can't stand it. And it begins to break you, and you weep, and you mourn, and there's something inside of you that just, it bothers you. That what, that's what propels somebody into God's work. Uh, my wife is reading a novel called March, March and um, there's this little scene in March where um, there's, a, there's a character there, um, her name is Marmy, Marmy March, and she's an abolitionist. She's involved in uh, freeing slaves. And she's ardently involved in this work, and she's selflessly and diligently out there trying to work for the cause of abolition. And how did it begin? Well, there's this wonderful little scene in the novel where uh, her husband walks in and sees her in the room, and she's breastfeeding one of her, one of her kids. And she's weeping. She's shaking. She's convulsing, and she's weeping. 
And he looks at her and he says, well, maybe it's because she's exhausted. You know, all you moms know what I'm talking about. <laughs> she's exhausted and she's breastfeeding and she's just tired and, and her father just died and maybe she's overwhelmed. But there's this great little scene. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, I came up to her and gently inquired as to the source of her distress, thinking that the fatigue of the new mother and the death of her dear father perhaps had combined to oppress her spirit. No, she sobbed. When I probed her, I'm thinking of the slave mother, she said. How can I sit here enjoying the comfort of my babes when somewhere in this wicked land her child is being torn from her arms? So it breaks her and it propels her into doing work for abolition. <clears throat> when I was younger, I remember being deeply bothered by bad preaching. And I had this uh, youth pastor who would talk for an hour and 15 minutes. And he was so boring. I mean, I would walk into the room, see that he was teaching, and be like, oh my gosh, this is awful, a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. And it bothered me. But here's what really bothered me. I brought a friend one day to hear the word of God taught, and he was so bored he never came back. And I thought, surely it could be done better than this. And maybe some of you feel like I'm just as boring. <laughs> but I thought, something's got to be done. You should never bore God's people with his word. <laughs> and it propelled me to Arkansas. What bothers you? It's different for everybody. What's so cool about Nehemiah is, is Nehemiah, you know, later on there's a man who comes in named Ezra, and he's bothered because the people aren't hearing God's word. But Nehemiah, what bothers Nehemiah? Broken walls bother him. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be overly spiritual. I mean, what bothers you? What makes you say, I just can't stand it? And maybe it's injustice for minorities. Or maybe it's the fact that in the church, things aren't getting done. Or maybe it's bad preaching. Or maybe it's horrible music or bad lighting or something like that. But I want to ask you to pay attention to, the, to what's wrecking you inside. Because maybe that's the very thing that God wants you to get to work on. That's where he wants you to build. Maybe it has to do with evangelism, or maybe it has to do with uh, you know, creating a good business in the community. Where is it that God wants you to build? Are you getting involved? Are you paying attention to what's wrecking you? Uh, Bill Hybels, and I never listen to Bill Hybels, but he gave this talk called um, A Holy Discontent. He calls this a holy discontent. And here's what he said. He said, what wrecks the heart of someone that loves God is often the very thing God wants to use to fire them up to do something about it. Whether you're a high-powered marketplace person, a stay-at-home mom, a full-time student, or something altogether different, you can join God in making what is wrong in this world right. And it all starts with you finding your holy discontent. It begins with you determining what it is that you just can't stand. So often those things that wreck us, we kinda, we're embarrassed of it or we try to push it down. But I want to ask you to listen to that. When you look at the world, listen to the thing that makes you weep, that, that makes you angry even. 
Maybe that's the thing that's going to propel, propel you into work, just like it did in Nehemiah. This is what happened. You see, he saw a problem that was bigger than his own problems. But he didn't just see it, he began to allow it to wreck him. And he zeroed in on something specific. For him, it was the walls. The walls weren't being built. For Ezra, it was the word wasn't being taught. What is it for you? God wants you to listen to that thing. What's breaking you? What's wrecking you? So the first thing is he saw the problem. He owned it. Number two, he, he allowed the problem to wreck him, to break him, to hurt him. He wept. He wept for four months. But then finally, I want us to see that Nehemiah is convinced of the solution. Because Nehemiah could have said, okay, I, saw, I see the problem. And man, it hurts me, and I'm broken, and I know something needs to be done about it. Why doesn't somebody do something about it? But you see, what really propelled him out? Because he could have just stayed there and said, well, I can't really do anything about this. Who am I to do anything about this? I'm just the son of Hekeliah. I'm just Nehemiah. That's all I am. What propelled him out? Well, he was convinced of the solution. He was convinced that there was a God in heaven that had a plan for this world. That there was a God of heaven who was, who was steadfast in his love and immeasurable in his power and that this God had a plan to redeem the world and that broken walls were nothing for this God. He knew that the solution to the problem was only found in the redemptive power and love of the creator God. And we see this in the prayer that he prays. Because the first thing he does, notice in verse 4, he's weeping, he's mourning. The first thing he did is he turns to God in prayer. Verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. And now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. Now I want to stop there because notice Nehemiah doesn't think that he himself is the solution. Nehemiah doesn't think that he's got what it takes. In fact, if you look at this prayer, Nehemiah knows, number one, that he's a sinner. I mean, he could have said, look, I can't do anything about this. I'm so broken and sinful. I've messed up just like everybody else. I'm part of the problem. But he knows that there's a God in heaven who forgives sins. That his sin, that his brokenness, that his stupid decisions are not going to keep him from building. And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. And it doesn't matter that you're screwed up. We're all screwed up. There is a God in heaven who forgives sins. And he's got a redemptive purpose for your life and the world. And broken people can build. Now notice Nehemiah doesn't think that he's some gifted guy who has what it takes to do this thing. What are the only visible qualification that, Isaiah, that um, Nehemiah has to build here? He's not, a, he's not a construction worker. He's not a governor. He, the only visible qualification that, I, that Nehemiah has is that he sees the problem. I mean, nothing else qualifies him. And yet he knows there's a God in heaven who's very powerful, who will go before him and go behind him 
and give him every single thing he needs to do what he's calling him to do. And maybe you look at your own life and you say, I'm nobody, and I can't do anything. And I don't know what, you know, uh, there's nothing real special about me. Listen, there's a God in heaven who will enable you. If you see the problem, that's all you need. There's a God who will empower you to build. What I love about this story, and I'm almost done, is that when, when you think about these people like Nehemiah in the Old Testament, none of them are great heroes. And really, the Bible is not a story of a bunch of great heroes. The Bible is a story of one hero. And all the people in the Old Testament point to this one. And listen, Nehemiah stepped out of the palace into the rubble in order to build. Does that remind you of anybody else? Jesus Christ, who was in the ultimate palace, stepped out into the rubble of this world in order to bring about a work of redemption. He's the great hero. And he's the one who will forgive you and enable you and redeem you and empower you to build. And so I just want to end by asking the question, where does God want you to get involved? Where does God want you to build? What is, what is the building project that God wants you to contribute to? And maybe you say, I don't know. Well, listen to what breaks you. Begin to just look around the church and, and look around the city and, and just look around and ask the question, what is it that bothers me, what breaks me, what wrecks me? What is it that I cannot stand? Because maybe that's where God wants to empower you and redeem you and enable you to build. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this book, uh, Nehemiah, which is about a man who contributed, one man who contributed to, the, to the, your great work of redemption in the world. And Father, um, all of us have areas where you want us to uh, get out of our comfort and get out of the palace. And by your grace and your power to, to, to get to work, to build. And maybe that's building in a Sunday school class or, or building in our neighborhoods or building in our workplaces but I pray that you'd show us that work that you have ordained us to accomplish. Thank you that Jesus Christ accomplished the great work so that we could join him in what he's doing in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.